0: Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and last time on the podcast I was talking about Sylvia Plath's poem Hardcastle Crags with my guest Donny Seacrest. Well Donny joins me again today to talk a little bit more about Plath, her work and writing on Plath, in particular her interest in environmental themes within Plath's work, as well as themes of hardness, softness and liminal squishiness which we talk about in relation to The Bell Jar and Hardcastle Crags. Linked in the episode description box below is a brilliant article by Donny about grotesque humour and metaphors of masculinity in uh, The Bell Jar. It's an excellent article, which I highly recommend you read. And make sure you check out our episode on Hardcastle Crags if you haven't already.
1: Oh yeah, okay. So, so when you asked me where did I first discover Plath, um, I actually first picked up The Bell Jar when I was a... a emo uh, high school student. And I just read it as terribly bleak. And I didn't come back to it really until I was a master's student at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And I took a seminar with um, Dr. Mark Boren. And we read he was doing a class on Gothic Romanticism, and he included this book, and so it already, you know, detached it from the the, um, the reputation it had as just, you know, a, a psychological examination of, you know, a confessional of what Plath actually went through. Because I think so many of us have been so tied to the narrative of, yep, this is Plath class experience, one-to-one with some name change. And so reading her in this new light, um, as as a, a Gothic writer, um, we, we actually talked about Esther Greenwood as a Byronic hero. And so I just found that hilarious and it opened up um, the whole book for me to, to really understand the complexity to it and just the really Riotous humor throughout, um, and and I also I have to do a plug. I love um, the audiobook version of of the Bell Jar too. I, I recently listened to it uh, on audiobook, and Maggie Gyllenhaal reading it. Um, Gyllenhaal gets it exactly right, and she just adds this comedic element that I think it gets. It gets looked over a lot um, because of the the equal amount of darkness that she brings to the text. But um, that was really uh, where I I found my my love and passion for for Plath's work.
0: Oh, it's it's so exciting about uh, the Bell Jar as as Gothic romance. I mean, it's it's perfect. But it's you know, yeah, not being taught as you know a, a dark contemporary novel yeah. only that's 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 wonderful yeah exactly. and I haven't listened to it but so many people have said the audiobook of the bell jar with Maggie Gyllenhaal is like the best version of the bell jar
1: absolutely she's such a gift honestly listen to it
0: <laughs> I I can imagine I, I mean I really I, I really like Maggie Gyllenhaal I can I can imagine she's she, she's like perfect I've had this conversation with a few people like who would you cast as Esther Greenwood I've never had a good answer really
1: yeah it would have, it would have to be her it would have to yeah. be Matt Hall. I know I I watched a terrible uh Plath movie and it was it was just all about um Plath's relationship with Hughes you know dramatized but it was Gwyneth Paltrow as uh as as Sylvia Plath and it was so wrong <laughs> it was, she didn't even dye her hair you know it's
0: it's awful. I mean no one comes out of that looking good. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And and I love Gwyneth, Saint Gwyneth, but that was not her her bright, brightest best moment for me. No.
0: I think I think when people are so good on the page, it's really difficult to act.
1: Absolutely. Like. Yeah. And I don't
0: know I, I should have brought this up actually because this is uh, the Hardcastle Crags which um I'll be putting out in the in the sort of last episode. It's one of the poems that we do actually have a recording of of Plath, oh, and wonderful. every time I every time I, hit, I I read a Plath poem and then I find out there's a recording of it and I listen to it and it's it's almost nothing like I imagined. Her voice is so particular and
1: right. it is. odd, You know, definitely, definitely. Um, I I can't remember which recording or which poem it is, but um, she says in some line of poetry. I, I think it's from a poem from um from Colossus and other poems but instead of lichen she says lichen and I just like that that pronunciation just lives rent-free in my head it's lichen I don't know but yeah very unusual voice and just totally unique Plath.
0: when you hear a Ted Hughes Ted Hughes reading a Ted Hughes poem you're like yep there it is broad Yorkshire (laughs) exactly what I'd expect (laughs) And then Plath sounds like in the in the space of a sentence she'll she'll be it's not a, it's not right to say it's a transatlantic accent because that means a kind of middle of nowhere it's like one word is really Boston and then one word is really Yorkshire and then one word <laughs> almost seems like RP like she's going for a, sort of a BBC accent
1: right so true yeah yeah
0: it's very strange but like hip, quite hypnotizing Um Definitely. so. Um, I really enjoyed your your article, which I will point people to. It's called "Stones, Turkey Necks, and Gizzards: Grotesque Humor and Metaphors of Masculinity in Sylvia Plath's *The Bell Jar*." And um, it's it was such an interesting article. But what I loved first of all was that you stress how funny Plath is, um, and as you just said, people are kind of resistant to that idea. Is that just because? Is it, do you think that is overshadowed by what happened to her, or or more to do with what is? what is perceived to be her subject matter
1: right right i'm i'm so glad we're talking about this and we can kind of think through it together Mm. Um, but i do think that her biography and the the real life events did and continue to overshadow and and force us i think it's a, a pretty well-known quote from Linda Wagner-Martin that reading her only biographically um, causes us to miss the true artistry in her work, in Plath's work, and so I think the the. I think I think at the time she was starting to be this literary darling, right? And she was kind of this rock star poet, uh, married to Ted Hughes, and and kind of a woman in in this like we talked about oppressive time period for women, um, just breaking through. So it, I think it got very sensationalized and um, unfairly. Um, I think that that narrative as Plath even, you know, makes fun of it in the bell jar of, um, you know, a crazy woman. Like that is just a trope that's out there that, um, you know, perpetuates dismissing women in particular. And so I I think it was a moment to, that, that could have been an attractive moment for people to see someone uh, you know, at their worst moment, and um, and just really wallow in the <laughs> the spectacle of it, and and so I think it's interesting what what gets remembered, and and how that forces us to 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 view work through that lens. Mm.
0: It is it is remarkable about the belt it, it kind of reminds me of what pe- people sometimes say about really horrible traumatic events is that there's there's moments of incongruous humor in them um she somehow she manages to be to 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 relate the distress of what happens to esther greenwood but also kind of step outside of it and notice something really funny that happens as well some kind of bizarre i'm thinking like the scenes at the hospital there's various interactions that are really really funny even though they're happening to someone who's in trouble
1: Absolutely. And I even um, like, I think back to the moment um, when she's when Esther Greenwood is getting better and um, Buddy Willard, you know, lumbers in as he does and and they're shoveling out his car and he asks her, you know, who's going to marry you now that you've been in a psych ward? And it's just To me, it's just so funny because, you know, that is so beyond, you know, what Esther has been dealing with and like just a question so out of left field and um, just shows what's being prioritized there. And um, so there's humor throughout, for sure. And um, finding the, the humor in the darkness, I think, helps us read this book in a new light, for sure.
0: I mean um, just on Buddy Willard one thing that always makes me laugh is that how he kind of uh, you, you know Esther kind of burns herself out with doubt and self-analysis and and keeping track of her of her I don't think she ever uses the phrase mental health but what we would now call mental health and then when she when she meets Buddy when he has also been in in kind of care and gone through his own treatment it's like meeting someone he's got that kind of dazed kind of look about, he's talking like a transformed person, but it's almost like someone who's done exactly the same, but with no introspection whatsoever. They're just sort of rolling rolling with the punches.
1: A thousand percent, yes. Yeah, I love that. Um, And again, in that, he's he's completely out of it and not asking the right thing in that moment either. (laughs) We have that marriage proposal um, gone bad gone bad
0: and then there's obviously you know the buddy willard moment that your your article kind of takes it takes the name from it's absolutely killer line um
1: (laughs) i know i know um i have another story about that just really quickly so the line let me see if i i have it marked here but it is it's iconic in the bell jar um you know Buddy decides that it's time for Esther to see him naked. And and he says, he's, you know, begins with Buddy explaining his underwear to Esther. And he says, quote, they're cool, he explained. And my mother says they wash easily. Then he just stood there in front of me and I kept on staring at him. The only thing I could think of was turkey neck and turkey gizzards and I felt very depressed. And I just find it so funny. Um, I, I also, in, in my travels up to Massachusetts, I got to hang out in the archives of Smith College and I met the, you know, amazing, fabulous Karen Kukel there and she was super helpful. And I got to look at an early draft of The Bell Jar and uh, Plath actually had a line that was crossed out and it said, right after that, um, I thought he looked awful and so that was really such a key to me that she's after this humor here um in this moment in particular and and it got crossed out I don't know if an editor decided um it was too much but I I just love that because every, every
0: from a if you imagine that from a comedian's perspective every single word is in exactly the right place for for, for the landing the joke even the like then yeah. then he stood there yeah it's like you it doesn't make any sense because he hasn't done anything so he wouldn't say then but it makes it so much funnier that then he chose to just <laughs> present me with this yeah.
1: exactly yeah her precision with language the timing is is incredible uh, and, i love the,
0: du- the the it reminded me of turkey neck and turkey gizzards like double stress the turkey
1: <laughs> exactly yes um I, I think that's so funny. Like, at, like it is, I think it shows how through and through she's a poet, right? Her precision language, these images she's she's capable of, you know, seemingly pulling out of nowhere. Um, and and just how like grotesque it is. Like if you bring up uh, a picture, if you just Google, I won't, you know, well, we're audio, but if you just Google turkey neck and gizzards, you get these really upsetting images on Google. Um, just, yeah, trigger warning there. You may feel very <laughs> depressed. <laughs> exactly. Yes.
0: Um, so in, in the article, you, t- you talk about the kind of archetype of masculinity and its connection to stones and um, in terms of testes but talking about testes as stones do you did you find when you said hard castle crags I was thinking it almost sounds like overdoing it you know it's like three hard things
1: yes exactly (laughs) right it's it's so funny um Just, yeah, you had mentioned that in our our correspondence earlier, um, but I didn't even catch the hard at the beginning, the most obvious part of that. Yes, hard, castle, crags. Um, She's really stressing it, and it's um, throughout her her collection of work. um, It's Mm. incredible. So um, it is a bit on the nose,
0: (laughs) for sure. Um, So you talk... Uh, about the kind of interchangeability of softness and hardness in the bell jar. Um, Characters get pebble eyes and uh, rocks are uh, compared to eggs. Um, And I always remember that, I think it's on the beach. Uh, I meant to look up the exact phrase, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but there's a moment where the landscape wobbles, I think she says like a stage curtain or a set or something. And I I always got the impression in the bell jar that sometimes when Esther's, inverted commas, at her illest she's sort of also the the clearest and most most resolute and i wondered if you thought whether or not the landscapes hard hardness or softness do denotes a kind of um proportionally opposite strength in in Prath's narrators like they when the what landscapes wobbling and looking like it might get pushed over esther or whoever it is is kind of at her firmest
1: yeah yeah i think this is Such a good question, such an interesting question. Um, And I I think in that scene in particular, um, I think we see that in in my article, I've kind of laid out that I think uh, Plath has this progression of imagery using rocks, stones and pebbles. Um, in a, a certain way. And so that question of, you know, do we think that the landscapes hardness or softness denotes proportionally opposite strength in class and narrators? Um, I think I'd have to think through that some more. But my, my gut reaction is to say not necessarily because this this usage of the rocks and stones as metaphor for masculinity at large, I think it sheds light on anything, um, any type of, of performance of gender that's not straight, white, male, traditionally what we think of as masculine, and, and that it reveals an attitude of, of how society treats that alternative performance of gender. And so in in my article, I, I try and lay out what I think is is one scheme or what I think of as the, the theory or Epistemology that that plath is setting up for us here. And it totally has to do with grain size, thinking about the smaller grains, the pebbles. Um, she associates the pebbles mostly with with Joan. And um, of course, Joan has masculine characteristics um, is is not heterosexual you know or there's questions about her her sexuality um, her performance of gender is is not the traditional performance you think of for a 1950s woman in the United States um, so so there's this masculine traits that that constitute 1950s society um, and so when Joan isn't performing, that that conservative 1950s woman gender correctly, she's condemned with these pebbles. She's not allowed to have the larger stones or rocks um, that might get associated later with with male characters in the story. Um, and so so as we, you know, up up our grain size to rocks or stones. I see Plath associating them with the male characters as a good productive thing. Um, and that there's this, I think, hidden key to her usage of the gizzard. And, um, you know, birds that use gizzards, they swallow, swallow small stones or rocks and they help them crush up the food. And so we see this as, um, a productive usage of stones, and that that productive usage is available to the male characters. But ultimately, um, because it is Plath, and she's you know working on these different levels than most of us are in day to day. Ultimately, she's showing how these associations um, and these attitudes towards this binaristic view of gender the simple view of gender um, she sees it as arbitrary Um, these condemnations or congratulations that it's ridiculous if it's based on sex alone so i definitely i definitely think that she's exploring these gray areas for sure
0: fascinating Uh, to to bring up um, gizzard's uh, I was thinking, reading your article of that, This it's one of those sentences that stuck with me since the first time I read The Bell Jar, and I didn't really know what to make of it at first. It's that line where she imagines coming back from Europe and has an alp in the back of her eye. Um, but then I thought about it when, after reading your article with this, you know, digestion of stones or, or, you know, c- consumption and, the, and then the, the bird's gizzard and how that comes into it. Why do you think it's important for narrators like... Plath characters like Esther to kind of digest or consume places like that?
1: I love this question. Um, I love it so much. So Plath's characters need to digest spaces. And I think one possible answer to this question, and there are probably more informed views out there, but I, I see it as, you know, this moment for women, especially, to assert themselves, this needing to digest, um, that it's a response to a historical time period where we're moving, Plath is thinking through how to assert herself too in in the uh, publishing world and and be in the present. Um, And I see this digestion as active and internal and this internal processing that allows for action and space right you know when we're eating something when we're digesting um, it allows us to move through the world and use those calories in a external way um, and also Plath's own lust for life and wanting to be assertive and an agent of her own destiny I think mm-hmm comes out a bit in Esther for sure. And this um, wanting to commune with the world. Um, and I, I also, because I've been thinking so much about environmentalism and, you know, expanding our definition of nature and thinking that we as humans are not separate from, from the things around us, from my cat, Um, the the insides and outsides, um, these things that we think of as as barriers um, really aren't. And and so we're thinking about these boundaries to the body um, and what's internal versus external. And again, that way to assert yourself and to digest what's outside and bring it in and possibly become it. So lots of different thoughts there
0: no that rings really true like b- becoming the place and kind of taking ownership in that way
1: right yeah. right yeah
0: we touched on this earlier but the the scooped out not even just the scooped out pumpkin but that wonderful line about the lymph and sap of um in yeah. hardcastle cracks it reminded me of the avocado halves and squishy caviar and crab meat that you talk about in in your article in the bell jar and that's yeah that kind of liminal squishiness between hard and soft do you think that as a way of being part of the world, of taking ownership of the world, uh, Esther and Plath narrators elsewhere are looking for a kind of universal or, or median element?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's exactly what I'm, and you've said it so, so you know, cogently and efficiently. I, I think she is looking for this universal element. And in terms of the... Hardness or softness, and that those in between spaces and objects and, and lots of squishy food. Um, I think she's Esther is exploring, you know, what she's not. She's definitely not this hard, rigid rock um, that's, you know, unencumbered, you know, not facing challenges. Um, or being held back at every turn, um, and so I think she's trying to navigate her own way through the world. So she's she seems in the bell jar to be particularly attracted to this these alternative substances um, like. What you brought up with the avocados—you know—that's a big part there in the beginning of the novel, thinking about it's my favorite fruit, and then uh, Doreen gives her a suitcase full of them, um, which is just so strange as <laughs> a parting gift. Um, but but then we come back to it with the Ladies Day banquet, and um, and so I I also in in my article I, I think towards the end I try and get into it with. Um, thinking about Esther Greenwood's fasc- fascination with mercury and where where the silver mercury shows up and how um, these squishy balls of mercury are really fascinating to her. And like you said, like in this moment where, you know, in her mental health, she's kind of sickest, but she also has this clarity about her in terms of the fascination and draw to to this really kind of magical substance. We know it's harmful now, but some interesting stuff there. And I think this is where I I wanted to chat just a little bit about her um, about Sylvia Platt's interest in this universal element. And so I I have this great um, this great um, entry from, from her journals. Um, I'm not sure, it's the unabridged version um, edited by Karen Kugel. Um, but I, I found this this great, and this is in my article in Studies in the Novel, but uh, I found this passage where, like you said, I see her in, in her, her works and her creative writing, the bell jar, um, definitely throughout Colossus, looking for this universal element or playing with different objects that could be said. to to have some kind of universal quality to them. Um, And so if you don't mind, I was just going to read this. No, please. Yeah. Um, So in her journal entry, reflecting on a day spent on the coast of Massachusetts in the early 1950s, um, Plath is, is working with these rocks. She's Um, sitting on these rocks and Plath's striking detailed description of her experience on the rocks lays the groundwork, I think, for her own theory of rock imagery that I've identified in the bell jar. But, quote, as a vehicle to express the core of my continuing evolving philosophy of thought and action, quote, Plath elaborates, A serene sense of the slow inevitability of the gradual changes in the earth's crust comes over me, a consuming love, not of a God, but of the clean unbroken sense that the rocks, which are nameless, the waves, which are nameless, the ragged grass, which is nameless, are all defined momentarily through the consciousness of the being who observes them. With the sun burning into the rock and flesh and the wind ruffling grass and hair, there is an awareness that the blind, immense, unconscious, impersonal, and neutral forces will endure, and that the fragile miraculously knit organism organism, which interprets them and endows them with meaning, will move about for a little, then falter, falter, fail, and decompose at last into the anonymous soil, voiceless, faceless, without identity, and a little bit later in that same journal entry she writes, from this experience also a faith arises, born as it is from the infinite simplicity of nature, It is a feeling that no matter what the ideas or conduct of others, there is a unique rightness and beauty to life, which can be shared in openness, in wind and sunlight with a fellow human being who believes in the same basic principles. And and so I think clearly, class. Events and affinity for nature here, and and she's basically saying it like yes, this is my universal element. I'm seeing rocks everywhere, and they pop up in in her creative works.
0: Yeah, I, we're we're back to that um quartz grit, that right? kind of right. that view of deep time, and and yes. you know it must be kind of maddening to go like well, what kind of poems do you write if you're if you're <laughs> if you're looking at time like that, just like. Exactly almost like you're watching the rocks form in slow, in time-lapse or, or something.
1: Absolutely, yeah, just such a talented, unbelievable force of nature herself, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. And who,
1: who writes like that? Who has journal entries, you know? <laughs> that are like high philosophy in Plath's everyday diary. Like, yeah. It's There was a
0: high wind today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, I mean, there are parts of that diary entry that sound like the various different just beats of the Hardcastle Crags. We even got the there was a reference to the Ridge of Grasses there as well, wasn't there?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was I think that journal entry is from 1955.
0: OK. So a couple of years, a couple of years before. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad you brought up those the 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 soft balls of mercury because i i I thought what you wrote about those was was fascinating and the way you tied it to the the theory you have that esther seeking a kind of soft masculinity yeah and and these are these servers not just a visual joke as in soft balls but they are they they contain all of the things we've been talking about this unearthly i mean to to a normal person mercury just looks like it shouldn't exist (laughs) um (laughs) um, but what could, could i just ask a bit more about what 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 you mean by this sort of like soft masculinity that Esther's uh, chasing?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is another really good question. I'm glad you asked. So in terms of soft masculinity, I'm almost thinking that Plath uses masculinity um, or as what we think of traditionally as masculinity. I think she's using it as kind of a stand-in for, for any, a genic capacity to make things happen, to be a force and be effective in your own life. And, and so the soft masculinity is, is I think what she's up against. She's finding that that's what's available to women um, during this time period. And that, Perhaps, you know, it's not enough maybe, but I think there's a scene with Dr. Nolan, the psychologist that ends up, she ends up really liking her and, and finding um, paths forward through her her guidance and, um, and practice. And I think Dr. Nolan helps Esther see that this, this, tender substance this soft substance that is available to women that that it's not worse than than the hard masculinity that it's just different and mm. perhaps it has its own benefits its own um, advantages that that the the hard masculinity of the rocks and stones can't get at
0: that so neatly like ties up almost everything we've been talking about really the, the physically elemental and then the, the kind of social and gender kind of aspect of it as well yeah
1: again I think Hardcastle Crags does pair so nicely with the bell jar because they both end with that and she goes back and she turns back and so I just love that, that pairing too. And I think, you know, I think there's, there's critical conversation of how the bell jar ends kind of unsatisfying. It's a little ambiguous, but I don't think so. I think if we put it next to Hardcastle Crags that there could arguably be, um, be an argument that it's, it's positive and we should hope for the best. I hadn't
0: thought of that. Of course, it's, it's, it is almost the same ending. There's some ambiguous, like, all right, so what's happened there?
1: Right, right. So I just wanted to bring that up. Um, yeah,
0: that's great. Um, so I, I absolutely loved your article and I want to leave a, a, a either a link to it or where, where can where's the best? place for people to find find your work or find out more about you?
1: So um, always feel free to, anyone can reach out to me over Twitter or through my institutional email or personal email, I don't care. Um, but if they they need a copy of the article, I'm happy. I you know I love nothing more than sharing my work and continuing the conversation about Plath. Clearly, I'm really excited to talk about her. Um, so so yeah, my my institutional email at Texas a and is great you know, send me a DM on Twitter. I think my Twitter name is just Donnie Sechrist and that's D-O-N-N-I-E-S-E-C-R-E-A-S-T. And otherwise, um, if you have access to an institutional library uh, through your university, through any one of the library databases, you should have access to the academic journal called Studies in the Novel. And I think it came out in 2020. So it's in the Mm. 2020 spring issue of that. But again, um, if you're having trouble accessing it, just let me know.
0: Great. Oh, well, thank you so much, Donnie. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Yes, thank you. That was so much fun. I've been looking forward to it all week. So, yeah, I love love talking about Plath and um, just, yeah, bouncing these ideas off each other has been terrific and Yeah, great podcast, I gotta say.
0: Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Um, Once again, Donnie's article is linked below in the episode description box. Huge thank you once again to her for coming on the podcast. And thank you for listening. Until next time, happy reading.